0: Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Today you have, as always, Mr. Mark Hamilton and Mr. Mark Daly. But we also have a, a bit of a special guest today. So you know what, I, I don't want to tease and I don't want to give away too much, but uh, a couple of days ago, Mr. Daly had the opportunity to sit down with the famous Australia FIA accredited journal, Mr. Stuart Bell, and they had a fantastic conversation. So I would ask you, plead with you, hang on because that is absolutely worth listening to but before we get to that you know we're 52 days away from what is scheduled to be the first race in Bath rain though that could possibly change mm-hmm. based on a lot of things that are happening right now um, but we've still got a lot of other stuff to talk about so mr daly you know what you've uh, done a great job kind of setting up for the podcast this week with that great interview um where do you want to get started today
1: Well, we're going to tease a little bit more. Not only do we have this really good segment with Stuart coming up in just a few moments here, but not only is it, did you say 50 days until the first Grand Prix now? 52 days. 52 days. But we are only just a little bit more than a week away from the first car launch. February 15th, mark it down now, the car launch, the official reveal for the McLaren. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, we're going to be followed up with the car launch for Alpha Tauri on February 19th, Alpha f- February 22nd, Mercedes all the way out on March 2nd, and everybody else, who knows? But <laughs> the you know, I is- saw
0: that Mercedes announcement this week as well, and the first thing I thought was March 2nd. And then I started doing the numbers, and I'm like, that's less than a month away. Like, yeah. that's going to be re- that's three, four podcasts away.
1: That's right. That's going to come out really quickly. And it, it it is exciting, it is so distant. March or sorry. Yeah. What is it? Uh, March 20, whatever it is for the first Grand Prix of lost track now, but 52 days. It's actually going to come uh, pretty quick. And, you know, once the car releases uh, come, then uh, for me, that's pretty much the unofficial start to the Formula One season. So it'll be nice. Uh, the week after next, we'll, we'll be talking about the first reveals of the, the first looks at the 2021 contenders and just can't wait.
0: I know it's early, but uh of those cars that we're due to see over the course of the next, say, thirty days, uh which one are you most excited to see? Oh, it's got to be the Aston Martin,
1: because their social media people are wicked in the way that they've been teasing us over the past uh, several weeks with these little hints and snippets here all over social media. Right? It's just, uh, I want to see that one first. Uh, Well, it's it's not going to be first, but I can't wait to see it. I want to see them all, but that one in particular, because they've done such a good job at winding me up that uh, I, I just can't wait to see that one. How about yourself?
0: Exactly the same. And yeah. you know what? Obviously, I'm excited to see the Mercedes car, but the Mercedes designs are, are incremental changes year over year over year. Now, last yeah. year was a little bit different because they went all in on that, that black livery, which was amazing. But I kind of expect that they'll probably transition back to that silver, that gradients into a darker gray. But the Aston Martin car, I have no idea. Like, it could be completely green, it could be neon, who knows. Now, we know that BWT is gone, so there won't be any pink components, mm-hmm. but we just have no idea, and I think that's why that car is so exciting.
1: Well, we know the the, the one thing that's pretty much a given is that the Red Bull is going to look like the Red Bull from last year and the year before and the year before. They've got their brand and, and everything, <laughs> but they don't tend to shake it up too much. Well, I guess none of the other big teams do either. I mean, the the big switch, of course, is like you said, uh, Mac- or, sorry, Mercedes who went to the all-black for last year, but I guess maybe we'll see a little Bit more maroon on the car this year. What with the Ineos uh, partnership, because they're they're not just sponsors; they can one third. Like owners in the team now, along with uh, with uh, Mercedes Parent Company and with uh, Total Wolf. So I, I, I wonder if we're going to see more of uh, that sort of branding on the car this year. But we'll wait and see. But we should get right into the news now, because um, there, there's a lot of McLaren news uh, out there, and I think this uh, really goes together nicely with the conversation that I had with uh, Stuart a, a day or so ago. And I think it's really uh, interesting. Um, and I hate to come across now as this uh, this Zach Brown fanboy, but uh, I, I must admit that uh, I, I'm still really impressed with the job that he's uh, done with the... McLaren. He's been quite uh, vocal, as well, with the salary and the cost cap uh, that uh, that that's been out there. Well, the 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 cost cap that's going to be implemented uh, imminently. But he's still out there talking about having a driver's salary cap. And I think just in the, in the in the the day and the age that we are, that it just makes sense the way that they're trying to bring everything under control in the, in this cost structure. That every, every everything else is being you know, more monitor, more structured. The salary is just, it seems to be the one missing piece to the puzzle, Mark.
0: Do you, yeah, you know, it, it's funny because I've thought so much about this and <clears throat> and I'm a big fan of North American sports. So when we talk about the NFL and Major League Baseball and the NHL, these are all sports that are really governed and regulated by salary caps because yes. you need to be able to create parity. You need to make sure that you can have uh, 30 uh, capable markets that are able to compete at the highest level and that the sports aren't always going to be dominated by the New York Yankees, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Chicago Bulls, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I like the concept and I'm a big fan of the Cost cap in Formula One as it applies to the cars themselves. So the development of the car, the cost of the mechanics, all of those kind of pieces. I, I'm really, I'm really undecided about a cost cap for the drivers. And and bear with me here because I think in principle it absolutely makes sense. But I we're also talking about a sport that only has 10 teams and 20 driver slots. I'm not sure that if I'm McLaren, because my assumption here is that if I'm Zach Brown, um, presumably I'll have a better opportunity to uh, court one of the top drivers, a Lewis Hamilton or a Sebastian Vettel or Max Verstappen. I, I still think that In the sport of Formula One, the top drivers are probably always going to lean into the teams that are fielding the most competitive cars. And my sense is that if you did create a salary cap for drivers, all you're going to potentially do is compress the value that these drivers can extract from the sport and my fear then is do they potentially look at other avenues to apply their trade and i i know this is really speculative i know this is really out there but i don't necessarily see what the benefit would be to the sport like creating a budget cap in terms of the development of the car creates parity. I don't know that creating a driver cap is going to create any additional parity, but it would absolutely devalue the contributions of the drivers. And if I'm Lewis Hamilton and a team believes I'm worth 50 million, I absolutely think he deserves that $50 million. So I'm still of the mind that the two should be separate. And I still don't believe that the sport is big enough in terms of the number of teams and the number of driver slots that if I'm a Zach. Zach Brown and I do agree. I think Zach Brown has done an exceptional job with McLaren, and I think it's unusual to see an American come over and succeed at the highest levels of yes. Formula One. But I think if I'm a smaller team, you know what? I'm going to be pro driver cap because maybe I can hold on to a driver that might otherwise be um, taken away by a Mercedes. You know what? I've developed this young driver. He's on the verge. We're on the verge. They can come in and offer him twenty million. I can only offer him two million. I. 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 I kind of side with the drivers in this case. I, I don't like the idea of a salary cap for drivers. I just, I don't think it's necessary. Um, and I don't think it would produce any additional Financial parity or stability within the sport. I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's just something I'm kind of passionate about.
1: Yeah, actually, you make a couple of good points that I'd never actually uh, considered before. But uh, again, I think uh, maybe what uh, what is interesting uh, comparing you know Formula One to say the NFL. The NFL has what a roster of fifty something players, I'm and not sure the exactly. players are
0: their only cost, right? Like yeah. if you look at the NFL, if you look at the NBA. That's, that's really your only outlay as an organization. Like, and again, there's some marketing costs and there's some insurance in a hotel, et cetera, but your principal cost is your players. It's your, it's, it's your, your player salaries in, in formula one, your principal cost is always going to be the development of the car. car.
1: Yes, of course. Yeah. That makes uh, total sense. But it would be interesting, though, if this is something that they decide to go with. Would it be, for example, they have ten million dollars or euros or pounds or whatever per year to use? And does that mean you could say spend nine million on one driver's salary and one million
0: on another's driver's salary? There's, I guess there's different ways you could uh, split it up. So it'll be interesting to see how and, this... Sorry, and maybe ahead. just the other thought too, and I know we've got to move along here, but the other thought is, hey, you know what, if you go to the drivers and you pitch this idea of a salary cap, maybe you also introduce the idea of a salary floor. Right. Like I think one of the things that Zach talked about is, hey, you know what? There's this discrepancy where, you know what? Some drivers are getting 20, 30, 40 million and other drivers are getting one to eight. But maybe the way you lobby the drivers is like, hey, you know what? We're going to have a salary floor and no driver is going to make less than five. Now they're going to peak at 10 or 15, but no driver will make less than five. So maybe that's a consideration as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a case to be made for for both of them. But moving along, just before we get to the first break here, we've got another quote. Zach, obviously a very good, you know, business person, very good at helping to run a team. Maybe not the quote machine that you'd like to see in 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 pro sports, uh, because he was talking uh, this week about the I I guess the the nadir, the abyss years of a McLaren, and he said that uh, during those dark years they'd become a little bit of Darth Vader when they should have been a little bit of more Luke Skywalker. So maybe not the the comparison I would have gone with, but hey, I'm a Star Wars guy. I love it. You know, really into Mandalorian season two, watching that one over again. But that's uh, that's a different story. But uh, it, it was interesting. I mean, basically what uh, he was saying is that they're a long way, or when he came into the team, that the team was pretty much declining in all areas. You know, they'd they they they'd lost a lot of the big sponsors like they had back in the day, like Vodafone, Johnny Walker, ExxonMobil. And uh, he said that the car was basically devoid and blank of all uh, sponsorship. He said that uh, most people were walking around the, the, the factory with their, you know, looking at the floor. It was a heads down scenario. And he said it wasn't so much uh, it was due to any one person or any one policy. He wasn't really playing a, a blame game. But uh, he said that uh, the one thing he noticed is what he called a ro- Evolving door of leadership, uh, starting at the top of the organization. Of course, we saw Ron Dennis come and go, and we had Barton Whitmarsh in between there. And it's, I mean, the, the history is well documented. But he really talks about what we've talked about uh, before, and and he talks about building a healthy organization, getting good people, getting them in the right positions, and then just letting them do their jobs. I mean, talking about guys, obviously like Andreas Seidel, guys like James Key, and all these key um, uh, uh, appointments that they. They've made since he's been on board as CEO and uh, I think it was an interesting uh, an interesting little insight. I don't think there's anything really shocking there other than perhaps maybe not the quote machine that uh, would really be clickbait worthy on this show. But whatever, I'll go with it. I'll go with it.
0: And and honestly the only thing I'm going to add to this is uh I, I think one of the things I've heard and I've talked to a lot of people in the F1 circus about where McLaren was five, seven, eight, ten years ago, and where yep. it is now, and what Zach's contrib- or contributed, I, everything I've heard is that Zach is a big culture guy. You know what, he took an organization and you summed it up perfectly. Like, you know what, five, six, seven, eight years ago, you know, you had the mechanics and you had the designers and you had the engineers, They're walking down, head on the floor. It was a depressed, even when even when they weren't where they became with, with that kind of Honda Power unit, like there, there was a depressed attitude to the workforce. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that was Ron Dennis. So I think one of the best things that possibly happened was kind of that divorce and the departure of Ron Dennis, which allowed Zach to come in and completely inject a new culture and new life in it energy yeah. into that factory. And you know what? I think the other probably positive thing that happened was also the divorce of uh, Fernando Alonso, because I mm-hmm. think he was creating a lot of distraction and a lot of friction. But I think Zach is a big culture guy. And I think where that team is now on the factory floor versus where it was five or 10 years ago, night and day. And I give him all the credit for that. And I'm very, very happy to see this team moving forward with their relationship with, uh, with Mercedes. And this is one of those teams that I can't wait to see on the grid next year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one final thing here before we go to the break. Uh, Mark is uh I, I think uh, when you nailed it on the head there I mean it's as is a I think the thing that needed to be done at the time was actually divorce themselves uh, from Ron Dennis I think it got to the point where the contributions that Ron made to Formula One and made to McLaren were obviously massive. But it, yeah. it got to the point where that to, it needed somebody else to take the team and the organization forward. And there there was a, a kind of a, a couple start and goes or start and stop instances, but they certainly seem to have the right people in place now. Anyways, we're going to take a, a short break here on deck. We have F1 journalist Stuart Bell. We're going to talk a lot about... Uh, Well, McLaren, we're going to talk about the Australian Grand Prix. He's based in Melbourne. Danny Ricardo and all things related to Formula One in Australia. So I hope you guys will stick around for that. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.
1: Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media,
0: and entertainment.
1: Welcome back to the show. And as promised, I'm joined now by Stuart Bell. Stuart is an FIA accredited Formula One journalist based in Melbourne, Australia. He's also a producer at The Inside Line. He's written for such outlets uh, such as uh, news.com.au, Seven Sport, and Motorsport Magazine. You can find him online at TheInsideLine.com and on Twitter at Stuart Bell F1. Stuart, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Thanks very much. I'm great. It's, uh, it's summer here in Melbourne, and uh, looking forward to the the start of the season in Bahrain. Yeah, well, it's
1: uh, completely the opposite as it is here. We've had some hiccups. It's a bit nasty weather today, but uh, we shall persevere, knowing that better days are ahead. And this is just Vancouver weather doing what it does best. It's blustery, it's wet, and it is what it is. But we're not here to complain about the weather. Well, maybe I am, but uh, we'll we'll keep that from uh, from everyone else. But. Stuart, as we talk now at the beginning of February 2021, how are things in Australia, specifically in Melbourne, where you're living? Because the the one of the big pieces of news in Formula One over the past month or so was the, well, I don't want to say the cancellation, but the rescheduling of the Australian Grand Prix until 2020, or sorry, later in 2021 until November. How's the situation there currently with the, the, the pandemic?
2: It's relatively good. I mean, we have 21 active cases as of today, uh, in Victoria, in in which is the, the state in which Melbourne is in, uh, we've got zero uh, cases uh, in terms of community transmission, and uh, it's it's generally pretty good. I mean, we've our, our restrictions. We were in a long, more than 110 day lockdown uh, through our winter, so we our, our freedoms have, have been sort of given handed back to us in many ways. Still, social distancing and, and wearing masks. But uh, the outlook is good and we're hoping to keep that going. So, obviously, we're very protective with those numbers and that's what has led to uh, to the postponement of the Grand Prix to, to November 21. Uh, the writing was really on the wall for, for Formula One uh, when the, the preceding tournaments, the Boxing Day Cricket Test and uh, the Australian Open Tennis, both... Uh, those sports, in terms of the athletes and the 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 all the people surrounding them, were forced into fourteen day uh, hotel quarantine, uh, which uh, Formula One just couldn't do, We'd given its two thousand people just for Formula One. So that made it very difficult, and that made the decision really uh, an inevitable one. And uh, so that's what's forced that. Um, and hopefully, looking forward to, to, to November, it can it can uh, happen uh, normally.
1: Well, there are some initial good uh, signs uh, coming out from different uh, parts of the world uh, regarding some of these vaccination programs, and hopefully this is uh, what you might say, m- maybe not the beginning of the end, but maybe the end of the beginning, that uh, that there are some brighter days ahead, but... Uh, Obviously, it takes a long time to get uh, the the, the track set up, the grandstands, all the facilities. But in part of the reason in rescheduling until later in the year, do you believe that um, should things continue as they are, and that's a a big if, and of course, the situation can change, unfortunately, quite uh, rapidly with with COVID. But do you believe that the ultimate goal is to try and get spectators into the stands once the Grand Prix is ultimately run? I do.
2: The the Australian government wants to have the entire Australian population vaccinated by October, late October. So that bodes well in terms of the event here. The the event in terms of its original March date uh, was always going to be just an Australians only spectator event. And they were hoping for around 50,000 people as a daily target, which obviously is very ambitious, but it was something they were, they were pushing forward with. And I think... In November, it will be the same thing in terms of hoping to have spectators there. What those numbers will be, who knows? But um, very much people are starting to go, go back to events here. We're seeing starting to see live music happening, albeit with with uh, social distancing. So the hope will be to have um, a far more COVID normal uh, Australian Grand Prix in, in November with the Australian, entire Australian population vaccinated.
1: You know, I I don't think any of us will ever forget March 2020 when things globally started shutting down. I I remember it quite vividly when it really started to get real, when uh, there there was first a test uh, positive in the NBA and all the professional sports leagues started shutting down and countries and cities are locking down globally and locally. It was a very, very strange and a worrying time to live through. But you were right there at the Australian Grand Prix almost a year ago. What was it like? What was your experience in that, uh, that, that moment of, uh, of change, of chaos? Uh, you know, you, use any word you want to, to, to describe it. It must have been a very, very unusual experience.
2: It was. It was very strange. It was very different to, to previous years because the Australian Grand Prix works like clockwork. Formula One uh, works to a very sort of minute by minute schedule and everyone knows what they have to do. And that's what it's been in for, for many, many years. And uh, it was almost like an hour by hour development. Uh, as uh, You know, we were at um, Melbourne Park uh, watching Lance Stroll having a hit with Leighton Hewitt pre-event. And even then, the, the, the COVID-19 had been upscated, uh, upgraded to pandemic. Uh, and so everyone was wondering, what does that mean for us? How is this going to affect the event? Earlier, you know, in the week, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation was sure that it wasn't going to affect us, that maybe a, a week or so in advance that, that you know, it, w- it wouldn't have been able to go ahead if it was two weeks later than it was, but... Um, you know, uh, events unfolded to, to force a decision. But on the Thursday in the paddock, everyone was was really just unsure of themselves. It was like everyone's seen a ghost. Formula One people are very focused people. They Everyone has their own job, know what they have to do and they get on with doing it. There's no, there is a little bit of chat in the paddock, obviously, but everyone is very, generally very busy and, and has a job to do. And to see people unsure of themselves and what they were doing, it was a very strange place to be because as I said to you everyone's normally very motivated and, and sure of what they're doing so 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 get so underway and, the, and it was mentioned in the in the press conference the drivers were, were a little bit worried and then once we saw that uh, team members had started to be tested and there were potential positive results it started to go downhill and once McLaren's uh, test result came back positive a, a team member mechanic, And McLaren came back positive uh, at at 10pm on the the Thursday night. That really forced everything to uh, the house of cards to tumble.
1: And it was quite interesting, over the quite weeks and months the- uh, since the, uh, the the cancellation of the race uh, that uh, that year, there's been different things that have come out, uh, d- just sort of percolated uh, up through the news. Was there ever, do you think, um, a possibility we might have seen a race run with, uh, say, uh, teams voluntarily withdrawing, much like we saw at Indianapolis, when was it, in 2004, 2005, when, what was it, the Goodyear uh, tyres, or uh, the teams running the Goodyear tyres withdrew and left only the Bridgestone runners? Or Was was it going to be all or no? nothing in your opinion
2: it was it was going to be all or nothing i mean the 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 local victorian health authorities the state in which melbourne is in uh, had said that it could go on behind closed doors but i think the the formula one community were i mean there was obviously debate Uh, mercedes was originally uh for uh for the event going forward and for the race going forward but the, the team spoke within, within themselves and came to a decision that they didn't want to to, to go ahead with one team missing. So I think, and, and it turned out to be the right decision because as all this was going on, the worry of, of COVID-19 was was ramping up. So to have a race going on right at that moment when it was exploding worldwide would have, would have seemed wildly irresponsible. So I think Formula 1 made the right decision and Subsequent to that, you know, made the right decision in, in you know, making a raft of postponements in hand to hand with, with uh, the countries in which the, the races were held. And then uh, getting a 17 a round championship up and running is incredible in terms of the turnaround and ensuring that Formula One continues because the, the money, you know, team was, you know, churn through a lot of money and, and need to need that sort of income to keep going. So for the good of the sport, the, you know, both teams, the FIA and Formula One worked uh, hand in hand to to ensure their sustainability long term.
1: You know, Stuart, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you here. I, I missed, must admit rather selfishly, I was very disappointed that the start of the season was delayed and what with the, the rescheduling of the Australian Grand Prix and now we wait till the end of March which is still some 50 odd days uh, from now it'll come quickly of course but it sets up a very interesting scenario we're we're very much used to the fact that melbourne is run at the beginning of the season and it's very much okay one down 22 to go this is my my first points of the season in the bag and it's just a, a, the the beginning of a very very long haul of what is a you know obviously a very long season which runs basically half the year if not more but now moving to the end of the year puts it in a very interesting position that this could be one of these races that will be could potentially help uh, decide the championship come at a very crucial point of the year, which I think will be unique and I think will add a different spectacle to the uh, to the race.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think the the stat is that Lewis Hamilton has won the title at uh, the third last race in three out of the last four years. So the the potential is there if that stat continues for uh, for a very exciting Australian Grand Prix to happen. You know, the the Australian Grand Prix, in, in terms of Melbourne sporting Uh, horizon is the jewel in the crown but we do have a lot of other sporting events and March is very busy in terms of our calendar we have the the comedy festival which is a big thing we have the start of our football league as well so it doesn't get lost but I think it certainly uh you know I think the the November day will bring some impetus to it uh, some momentum local momentum and if the title is on the line then that will just uh really connect with locals here because Melbournians are huge sports nuts and if there's a title on the line there's You know, there's something really to to get behind. And, you know, in terms of November sporting events, we've got the Melbourne Cup, which is a a big horse race here. But uh, other than that, I mean, it really will will feel a, a really nice void there in November.
1: How will it also work in in terms of the, the 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 weather? You're basically flipping from one half of the year to the other half of the year. What what what'll be like for um you know, for those of us that are not particularly familiar with the with, with the climate and the weather in uh, Melbourne in no, November? How could that uh, potentially factor into the race itself? Is there the, the the temperatures obviously that's your summer, so is the temperatures going to be vastly different from the traditional spot in March or more or less the same? No, I don't think
2: so. I th- I think it'll be quite quite similar in terms of sunny days. Uh, Pot- potential hot day in there but you know maybe some rain but I, I think it in November is pretty stable uh, and similar to March and that it's, it's a changing season it's moving from from uh, so for spring into, into summer and uh, so where, whereas March is, is autumn uh, so, you know moving move from summer into autumn so I think similar sort of changeable conditions potential for nice warm days and and uh, beautiful sunlight so I think it, it really does make sense it's like a interchanging of of event and a great date change for us in terms of keeping it, so it's not too hot or not not uh, not too cold or not too much rain.
1: Well, considering what it's outside, uh, you know, my house uh, today, I I must admit that that sounds uh, absolutely lovely. So let's uh, switch gears here, uh, Stuart. Uh, Of course, uh, we're in this sort of weird in-between time, between seasons, but there are so many great stories coming out of 2020 and so many interesting threads to pull on going into 2021. I mean, you you could sit here literally for hours and, and pull on each of them. But what are some of the interesting stories that you're going to be really focusing on going into the new year?
2: Look, I mean, I think it's 2021 is an interim year before the 2022 new regulations come in. So, But I think there's plenty of exciting story threads, as you said, with uh, the return of Fernando Alonso after two years, uh, which is going to be exciting, especially with the change to Alpine for, from Renault. Uh, looking at Ferrari, the Charles Leclerc and Carlos signs there, very young lineup, very hungry. To move Ferrari back up the grid after their worst season since 1980, so there'll be a lot of a lot of uh, you know hunger for them to move up the grid and, and pressure, especially from from Italy to to succeed. Obviously, at Red Bull, you've got uh, Sergio Perez joining Max Verstappen. I think it's a fantastic time for Sergio to be joining max after after 10 years in Formula One and he's he's a different driver to that which joined McLaren in 2013 he's you know that was his first top team experience and I think you know the intervening years you know coming off that win in Sakia last year and all the experience that he's going to bring to Red Bull obviously that's a a difficult car to drive we've seen Alex Albon and also Pierre Gasly struggling in that Red Bull car uh, and if Perez can, can get in there and they give him the right support, he's the sort of driver who needs a little bit of an arm around the shoulder, I think. But if he can get in, get the support network right and and just, you know, deliver, then it could be an inspiring season for him. Obviously, Daniel Ricciardo at McLaren joining Lando Norris. Moving from Renault, I think it's a really exciting time for, for Dan uh, with all the ingredients there for him at, at uh, Mercedes-powered Renault, uh, sorry, Mercedes-powered uh, McLaren. Uh, you know, it, it could be, you know, more podiums on the horizon for him as well.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Ricardo was an especially interesting uh, driver to, to to look at, uh, considering he went from well, I guess at the time was well, obviously a top three team with the Red Bull, but certainly in 2018 was just that little bit further behind uh, Ferrari uh, when it came to regularly challenging uh, uh, Mercedes. But you have that sort of interesting interlude at uh, at Renault the past couple of years. Obviously, last year was uh, marked by a couple of podiums later in the season, the Nürburgring and uh, Imola. But that had to have been for Daniel a very tantalizing um, vacancy after Carlos Sainz was announced to be uh, replacing Sebastian Vettel at uh, Ferrari. And I've been very impressed with the work that Zach Brown has done at McLaren over the past uh, several years, bringing in very, very good people to fill key roles at the team. And, uh, you know, I, obviously, I don't think it's any accident or, uh, you know, uh, anything of the sort that they've slowly progressed up and, and, and gradually improved over the past couple of years. And I think they have a very good driver pairing now at Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo. And the question is, is, is how much further up can they go? Because I still feel that uh, it'll it'll Ferrari will be an interesting team to watch, but I still think there's going to be a bit of a vacuum created by their drop-off compared to, to where they were a year, year and a half ago. And I think that uh, for a team certainly like a McLaren and, and a driver like Daniel Ricciardo, I think must be really eyeing the the, the new season somewhat eagerly.
2: Absolutely. I think Dan, Dan was you know, when he left Red Bull, he left Red Bull because he was he was frustrated because they promised him title bids that, that never came. And in the intervening years, he moved to Renault. Obviously, the sport was blindsided when he moved to Renault uh, because, it, for all intents and purposes, he seemed like he was going to stay at Red Bull. They were they were a top team, and to switch to Renault, uh, which was on a, an upward trajectory at that point, having gone from ninth to sixth to fourth in, in three years, was, was an impressive uh, move up the grid. But... Um, you know, I think he's learned. He learned a lot at Renault. His first year at Renault was was difficult. Uh, gave him some some uh, sort of resolve to, to push forward with, and to get those two podiums uh, last year in uh, the Nurburgring at Imola were very impressive and allowed him to bookend his uh, his career there. I think. Um, you know, I spoke to him in Brazil uh, in 2019, uh, and he seemed. It did seem like he was going to stay there. Like it seemed like he was really impressed with. How Cyril was able to, uh, you know, uh, galvanise the team and keep them together, but obviously the potential at McLaren is they've got, an, you know, an amazing uh, list of ingredients there in terms of the Mercedes power unit. You know, they've got Zach Brown, obviously uh, leading with Andreas Seidel, who. Dan is a huge fan of in terms of the team principal, the architect of their future future success. They've got James Key, who is the preeminent designer. They've got uh, Andrea Stella in terms of, uh, you know, overseeing all their race strategy. And I just think it, it, it they've got all their ducks in a row, you, you know, if you will, uh, whereas Renault is still sort of wondering about their top management with Marcin Budkowski and David A. Brivio, obviously going to be at the top and how that works and how, how the rebrand with Alpine is going to happen and Fernando Alonso's return. And I think there'll be a little bit of, uh, you know, um, yeah, it just, it just makes it a lot more unsure in comparison to McLaren, which finished the season third last year and, and uh, has the momentum behind it to do even better things this year going into the new era.
1: You know, uh, when I go back and think about that surprise announcement he made a couple of years ago in the summer of 2018 to say that he was leaving Red Bull and going to Renault, I mean, it it obviously caught a lot of us, most of us, uh, by by surprise because, uh, as you mentioned, it sounded like that uh, that deal to stay with Red Bull was all but um, you know finalized after the Hungarian Grand Prix. But I can't help wondering, and I've never heard anything to the contrary, whether you know it was said explicitly or not. Whether that Dan just realized that the writing was on the wall and that uh, that that Max was going to be the focus of that team going forward, and maybe that uh, that uh, th- there was opportunities elsewhere, but I, I, can't, I can't help but wondering. Even though the the Alonso announcement came after Daniel uh, you know made made it known he's going to McLaren, was whether or not would that have worked? That the, the sixty four thousand dollar question, a partnership of Daniel Ricardo and Alonso at Renault, because Fernando casts casts an awfully big shadow, in my opinion.
2: Yes, he does. But I think, look, I think Dan is not afraid of a fight. I think, yes, uh, you know, Max Verstappen is, is one of the most exciting talents to, to, to join Formula One in, in many years. He's the driver of his generation. But I think Dan is focused, is bursting to, 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 to fight for a title. And that, that really is the, the crux of the matter uh if you look at and I put this to him I said you know look look at look at what uh Max Verstappen has done since you've left uh Red Bull he's had five five wins uh you know I think two three and two uh in in two years and so that's not that's not fighting for the title I think mm-hmm. the Honda coming on board he was not he was not sure of how that 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 potentially was going to go and Obviously, still Red Bull are trying to to chase themselves in locking down that engine freeze for for next year to be able to manage the the the, the Honda program themselves. So I think whether he would stay stayed at, at Renault and fought uh, Fernando, he's, he's I've spoken to him about that. He has no issue with with Fernando, and I think they would have got along. Obviously, Fernando, we know. Uh, I've spoken to plenty of drivers in the, in the past about him. He wants everything focused on him. Hmm. He wants every part, every every opportunity moves towards him. He is a team leader. But as is Dan, uh, I think it would have been a difficult uh, and, and tough battle. But um, but I, I think when he saw McLaren, he, he saw potential. And when the chance came, obviously they'd been chasing him through when he was at Renault. So, you know, I certainly think that you know they've been talking for a long while, and the chance came, and he jumped at it. Yeah,
1: it'll be certainly very interesting to watch. And if we sit down here at the end of 2021, after the season is done, and and of course this is maybe a little bit hard to speculate on, but what would you think would constitute like a successful season, a first season at the McLaren for Daniel Ricciardo?
2: I think if he can get into into the team if he can galvanize the workforce and and bring everyone together and start moving in the in the right direction i think results obviously they'll be looking at podiums and if if he can get a podium with mclaren his first year and see how the how that that team is moving into the new era i think really it is about making sure that they're they're prepared for 2022 the new era era regulations are, are a huge shift and so, if he can if he can get on board and get into those plans and see what they're what they're doing and make sure that everyone's moving in the right direction and galvanise the team and get everyone behind him, then you know I, it's got it's got to be a working year. And whether he he finished fifth in the championship last year, if he can do that or or uh, you know or, or maybe go fourth, great. But I, I think really it's it's just about this year is about getting into McLaren, working out what needs to be done, and then preparing for next year.
1: You know, uh, Daniel certainly is one of the great personalities in Formula One at the moment and uh, certainly has a wonderful sense of humor. And uh, although I've never met an Australian that's uh, invited me to partake in a shooey, I don't know if that means I've been meeting the right Australians or the wrong ones. You know, I think it's probably the right ones. Certainly his uh, his own, uh, you know, sense of humor, his enjoyment uh, certainly adds uh, something to the sport. And it was great to see him get back onto the podium a couple of times uh, last year. Uh, I I was uh, starting to get a little bit worried because I I admit I'm a fan of him. I enjoy his uh, the the way that he races. I enjoy the way that he presents himself in the media and the way that he, he comes Across it generally, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing what he can do uh, this year. So uh, before we wrap it up, Stuart, I would be remiss if I didn't put you on the spot here because uh, we I've mentioned Daniel Ricardo, but uh, Australia has produced some phenomenal Formula One drivers over the year. Daniel Ricardo, Mark Webber, Alan Jones, Sir uh, uh, Sir Jack Brabham. If we were to look uh, into the crystal ball, is uh, who should we be keeping our eyes on in the future that uh, that might have that potential to to make it to the big stage?
2: Well, I think the the, the real the only option, certainly at this stage in terms of immediate talent, is Oscar Piastri, nineteen year old from Melbourne. He uh, was—he uh, really is the star on the rise at Renault. He won the Formula 3 Championship last year. Before that, he w- and that was in his first season. Before that, he won the Formula Renault Euro Cup in uh, 2019. And in 2017, he was second in uh, British F4. So he's got the momentum behind him. He's joining Prima Racing, which uh, Mick Schumacher uh, raced for and won the championship with uh, last year. He, uh, he, he tested, he's part of the Renault Driver Academy. He tested the RS18, the Formula One car in Bahrain late last year. He is the star on the rise. He's a very serious guy and uh, very committed, and I'm sure. The, the F3 and the F2 car are very vastly different machines uh, in terms of the driving style they, they require. So if he can get in and start winning and uh, potentially, whether he wins in his first season or takes two years or learns it, and then wins it in uh, 2022 for, to join F1 in uh, 2023. We'll see, but uh, he's certainly a strong talent. He's competitive, and uh, yeah, he, he's he's certainly the 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 chance. Next, Australia's next big chance.
1: Well, that's great. We'll certainly keep an eye on him. And as uh, Stuart, before I let you go, and uh, again, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, today. Where can people uh, find you online and uh, check out uh, your work?
2: You can just go to stuartbell.com.au or to unbeaten.com for all the Inside Line updates.
1: Well, that's great, Stuart. Thank you so much. Take care. Stay safe. I know you've got a flight to to catch. And uh, once again, thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon.
2: Thank you very much.
1: All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, interview, that conversation I had with uh, Stuart Bell a couple of days ago. You know, it's, it really was uh, interesting in many things, but the, I just couldn't help but asking him right off of the top, just what the situation was with COVID where he lives in, in Melbourne and, um, Obviously, there's been a bit of a hiccup uh, this week. What with the preparations for the Australian Open, there was, uh, I believe, a security guard in the, the the hotel where all the players and all the support staff and everybody's uh, been staying and quarantining. So that's kind of thrown a, a little bit of a wrench into the works there. So we'll see how that uh, plays out. But it was just amazing to hear. Of course, they did a really harsh lockdown there. You know, they're down to just basically double digits in in active cases, and they've had a, a long period of like no new cases at all, and it kind of made me. Realize that um, we still got a long way to go where we live, but hey, whatever you know, it is what it is. And uh, at least uh, you know we're, we're here talking about Formula One, and that's the the distraction. But I thought that he made some interesting, interesting points. And one of them, I thought that was uh, you know I, I think that I'm really looking forward to is the rescheduling of the the Australian Grand Prix. I mean, the one thing that Stewart said is they're hoping to have basically the entire population of the country. Uh, vaccinated, uh, or at least those people that are going to do it by October of this year. They're setting the Grand Prix up now for November. It's going to be right in that sweet spot that potentially we could see a championship uh, decided, you know, if uh, you know, recent history is anything to go by. And the thing is, I think that Australia has been a great host of Formula One over the years, over the decades. And I don't, I don't want to say being the season opener it lessens the event anymore because it, it doesn't. I mean, it, it is the, the the kickoff to the season. But it is just the first stop on a very long season to see it switch now to another time of the year. I I think that uh, I'm hoping that it'll, uh, you know, turn out to be an exciting finish. And it would be kind of cool to see a championship uh, decided there for once.
0: Yeah, I I don't have a lot to add other than the fact that I think oftentimes it's a little bit anticlimactic when we conclude a season or a championship in Abu Dhabi. And with all, with all due respect to Abu Dhabi, you know what? It's a very, very static kind of crowd it's not super emotional there's only 60,000 people there but I can only imagine what the atmosphere would be like in in Melbourne if the title was decided at that track like I can't wrap my head around it and the fact that we could potentially be in a position where you have the 70 80 100,000 people there on race day this year fingers crossed knock on wood and a potential title decider that would be amazing and I also hope that the season plays out in such a manner that the title comes down to one of these final races like i don't want to see another season where the the title is decided with three or four or five races left, like I hope we're in a position where that could be the the potential outcome, right? I think mm-hmm. that would be amazing. I really don't want to see a title decided in saudi arabia i don't think i don't think they deserve that experience, given the fact that this is their first year on the calendar i don 't want to see it happen in Abu Dhabi, but I would love to see a potential title decided in in Australia, especially given the fact that they they didn't they didn't secure a race last year because of the entire COVID situation, and this year has been bumped. But I also thought it was really interesting, especially that conversation that you had about the status of COVID in that country. And things can change quickly, but yeah, obviously yeah. that country's done a, a great job. Their lockdowns were effective. They guarded their borders. They take things very very seriously. And you know what? I believe that you and I were probably amongst the first media outlets that really began discussing the fact that hey, the Canadian Grand Prix probably probably... Probably not going to happen. And just so all of our international listeners can know, Montreal is in the province of Quebec. Quebec has been completely locked down since the middle end of December. They're slowly going to start reopening starting Monday. So Monday, they're going to start allowing some non-essential retail with limited capacity, limited hours. They're going to start letting some restaurants open with family-only bubbles. But you know what? At this point, we're what? March, April, you. we're four months away from when that race would happen and two and a half months away from when they would need to start track preparations. Yeah. I don't think Canada's going to happen. Um, and you and I have been saying it for a month, but I think that also speaks to the fact that F1 probably expected this and they probably built a lot of flexibility in the calendar for that reason.
1: Yeah, I think so. They've hinted as much. Uh, over the you know the the, the past several weeks since they, they came out with a provisional schedule and it was interesting too uh, when Stuart and I were talking off air that usually the preparations for that middle of March uh, date usually start the last week of January when they start putting up the wow. grandstands and usually everything's all taken down and everything's back to normal at the at, at the end of April I believe he said so I mean he said there's a good also four weeks when that um, w- when that section of the uh, Albert Park that that main thoroughfare that uh, actually goes into the central uh, business di- uh, district in Melbourne is actually shut. So it's, it's completely closed off for about four weeks. So it is a major, major that thing that they do there. And it, it's, it's a big event. It's obviously well-loved uh, by, by the locals there. I mean, Melbourne has a, has a reputation for a big event, big sporting event uh, city. So it, it's great to see that, uh, that, that it's going to stay there. But, you know, the, obviously we, we had to talk a lot about uh, Daniel Ricardo. I mean, Stewart has spoken with him quite a bit, and it was really good. I mean, last week, we saw our first looks of Sebastian Vettel getting fitted up for a seat at Aston Martin. This week, we saw our first looks of Danny Ricardo getting fitted for a seat at McLaren. And, uh, so again, it's one of these uh, other indicators that uh, we're, we're getting very, very close to the start of the season, but just kind of leading off to where we were just uh, talking before our chat with, uh, with Stuart is that uh, going back to our favorite uh, CEO in Formula One, Zach Brown, he said he's uh, expecting seriousness uh, and not a goofy odd couple when it comes to, uh, uh, Danny Ricardo and, uh, and Lando Norris. So <laughs> I don't know. I think they're both pros, but I, I certainly hope that they don't like try and lock them down too much. I still hope that they have a little bit of fun, but obviously from, from a team point of view, they're not going to want them to get too silly or, or goofy as, uh,
0: Zach says. Can you believe? And, and I thought the conversation with, uh, with, uh, Stuart about, Daniel Ricciardo was really good. And and obviously, uh, for those of you that don't know, and I think all of our listeners do know, Daniel Ricciardo is an Australian driver. He's one of the most charismatic, entertaining guys on the entire grid. Super, super likable. But I I was looking at this earlier today because I'm like, man, when did he start his his F1 career? This is going to be his 12th season in F1. And it's remarkable because I always think about him as kind of one of these younger drivers, but he's now in his, his early 30s. He's a veteran driver. He's kind of probably Probably on the back nine of his career, but I'm incredibly excited to see. And and you know what's remarkable too? Because I often I often have trouble compartmentalizing when certain things happen. And when I was looking at his career, you know, it was really 2014, that first year of the V6 turbo hybrids that he kind of broke through when he had those three race victories. But again, I'm excited for him. Obviously, the first year with Renault was a disappointment. I don't know if he necessarily had big expectations. I think the fact that he was able to capitalize on some podiums last year was fantastic. And it builds some momentum going into this year. I think the one consideration I have, and I don't want to get too far off base, is Renault and and McLaren both benefited greatly last year by the absence of Ferrari on the podium week after week after week after Mm -hmm. week. And I I just, I, I wouldn't be surprised if McLaren finished lower in the constructors than they did this year. I think this year was an epic finish. And I think a fourth or a fifth place finish in a competitive calendar probably isn't necessarily a sign that they've done anything wrong. It just last year was a little bit unbalanced.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think the wild card in that scenario is, is is the scarlet cars. It really depends what happens with the Ferrari this year. I mean, there, there, there's been some talk about the different areas that they're going to try and develop in the engine, which maybe might not uh, point to exactly where they were uh, doing naughty things in 2018 and 2019 but may kind of uh, you know point in a direction where they're trying to find power in legitimate ways you know allegedly so that I think <laughs> that is the, the the big unknown I mean if they can pick it up and, and and find some more performance if they can kind of get back closer to where they were in the past several years rather than the say the the, the first two thirds of this 2020 season Ferrari then yeah I, I could certainly see that that middle of the pack, the best of the rest battle kind of being shaken up with your Aston Martins, your Ferraris, your Alpha Tauris. You can even throw them in there and McLaren as well. So it, it, you know, that, that middle of the pack battle, I think could be a fascinating one to watch this year.
0: Yeah. And I I think middle of the pack, I I even think that the top, because it's probably, it's probably evident that Mercedes is going to have a very, very strong year. Um, It's probably going to be a very strong year for Red Bull, but I think, Potentially, Aston Martin could be more competitive than we think, and I don't know that they're necessarily going to be competing with the middle of the pack, and maybe they're a little bit more competitive with the with the Red Bulls of the world. and I, And I hate to speak in such vagaries, but I just think mm-hmm. that's a a reality. Um, and I know you hate when I do this, but I, I just <laughs> wanted to bring this up real quick and take us off tangent. But I saw something on Reddit today, which I thought was uh, fantastic, and the Reddit users are really great with data. But they brought up a chart, and I'm only going to read a couple of them to you. But just just in the kind of the the conversation of of McLaren and Ferrari and all these other kind of teams Um, F1 wins by car color you can probably guess which car color do you think has won the most races in Formula 1 in the sports history I would say red you're right you're absolutely right. Red cars have won 271, or 27 wow. percent of all of the races. Now, wow. this one shocked me, and I would be very surprised. Actually, you know, what? I wouldn't be too surprised if you got this one. The second color, what car? What? Which is the second most dominant car color in terms of race wins? I, I would go with silver. Close. Close. It's actually blue. Really? 234 wins, or 23 percent of race wins, um, followed up by. Silver, thank you, McLaren or Mercedes for their dominance at eighteen percent, and then white at seventeen percent. Wow, um, orange is just six wins at oh point six percent. But yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting that blue cars have won the second most races, and uh, presumably they're speaking to the. Uh, Williams, Renault cars of the, the early 90s that were very dominant. But yeah, just to take us off track and I'll get scolded for that later, but now we can come <laughs> back on track. Well, no,
1: actually that, that's a good one to kind of like, uh, you know, a, 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 an interesting tangent to go off on because we, we were talking about it the other day just to, that to perhaps, you know, there, there's this rumor now, this uh, story that perhaps Renault is going to partner up again with Williams to provide them with uh, with, with power units moving forward. And, uh, you know, you, you texted me there the other day. It's like, what do you think of that? And I think my, my answer was, oh, Oh yes, please, because you know that goes back to the Williams Renault glory days of the '90s, and of course, well, the the glory days of the '80s were Williams Honda, and that that's obviously not going to be a thing. So, you know, they they won a lot of races, they won a lot of championships uh, with with Renault power, and I I think that's interesting because you know if you believe the talk out there, you know they they were, you know they they're really interested in pursuing like a partnership with uh, with Sauber, and I guess you know what with that uh, you know re upping that uh sponsorship slash whatever you want to call it with uh, with uh, alpha romeo completely you know blew that one out of the water so it would be interesting it would be a natural fit but I find it kind of interesting because you know before Severil abitabu le- left the team he basically said that there was no real benefit for them to supply uh you know another team with with power units uh, you know it wasn't really a money- making thing for them so it's a, it's a it's an interesting development that the the new regime there is is thinking of that so it's
0: certainly want to keep a, keep an eye on for sure. I was so excited when I saw that headline and, and, and you and I have talked about this so much Mm -hmm. that it always seemed very peculiar that Renault wasn't looking for a customer team for their power units, right? Like if you have a partner team, it, dramatically helps to subsidize the cost of producing that power unit and the the side benefit or the knock-on benefit of having a partner team is that you get all the incremental data that yeah. comes with running that engine in two additional cars so it benefits your your own team and it never made sense and the reason that it really excites me is that if Renault yeah. is looking potentially for a customer team it speaks to the fact that they're probably more invested in the long term association with the sport than we think. Like mm-hmm. my fear always was that, hey, if they're not looking for a customer team tie-up, maybe they're not in this for the long term. So I think the fact that they're looking for a customer team is is uh, is exciting because it speaks to the fact that organizationally they're really invested in Formula One. They wouldn't be looking for a customer team because it kind of partnering with a team and integrating the power unit and integrating the resources and that all the data interfaces like it costs tens of millions of dollars just to build that relationship before you even start handing over a power unit yeah. um, so this is exciting and to your earlier point too and it was so funny cuz i texted you and you texted back with a photo of a 118 scale williams renault and i'm a super nerd so i went up to my shelf and i texted back <laughs> with a photo of one of my models but you're right you like you look at the early 90s like they won the 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 constructors championship in 92 and 93 and 94 and 96 and 97 they were second in 95 they had an absolutely monster monster run and For the sake of romance aside, I would love to see that relationship rekindled. But at the same time, I'd be worried that if Williams can't be competitive with the best power unit in the sport, in that Mercedes unit, I don't know what it's going to look like if they have to start over with a Renault power unit. But it's good that Renault is looking um, at a partner team for all the reasons I just described. Yeah,
1: you know, just uh, I'm having like a major uh, sentimental flashbacks here of those early 90s. Williams car I mean you have like Nigel Mansell's what was the FW15B in 1992 yep. that was basically a car Well, I, it couldn't drive itself but it had some groundbreaking technology on there especially like that active suspension oh and yeah that that is just uh, absolutely phenomenal i mean just a beautiful car to look at i believe the car that i uh, snapped a picture of i believe that was the fw18 which would have been yep. damon hill's uh, championship winning car and then uh, you yeah, know well, i mean they were just racking up the titles in the 90s i mean it uh, it seems like a long long time ago and then uh, after that uh, you know I, the, I also remember them vividly in the early 2000s what was that, uh, that BMW partnership and the HP partnership and uh, you know somewhere in here I've got the the, the Ralph Schumacher hat uh, that I picked up at the Nürburgring all those uh, years ago but uh, yeah, yeah but maybe we should uh, go go away or move on to the next one before the feels get too intense here you know I go, go too far down memory I know lane. <laughs> and,
0: and I, I'm tempted like I've got so much sentimentality about this because, you know, especially that '92 season with Nigel Mansell. Like, I, I was, I was back in the UK, and I, I would remember every weekend because my grandparents were huge Formula One fans. Mm. They were huge Williams fans, and they were huge Nigel Mansell fans. Like, yeah. I remember every Sunday sitting in their kitchen, watching on their little white um Sony Trinitron TV, watching the Formula One race every single Sunday. And, and of course, at it, it, that period, it was like a Nigel Mansell kind of domination thon like he was winning every single week so like this is really deeply ingrained in my memory for all those sentimental reasons but yeah that's just another reason why i'm very very sentimental um towards that period of f1 but you're right we should definitely move on
1: you know, just to to stay on the Nigel Mansell thing here, I remember as a young kid watching was it uh, when he was driving for Lotus. Now I'm talking. I was like really, really little, and I think it was Dallas, and I don't remember the year, but it was early to mid uh, '80s. I remember him running out of gas, like running out of petrol, getting out of the car, pushing the car to get across the uh, the, the finish line, and then collapsing afterwards because he was exhausted because of the heat, because of yep. the you know the exertion of uh, driving a Grand Prix car, it, you know. Over over the last two hours or something. Then I also remember that this is also as a young kid, the 1985 European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, which I think might've been his first win in Formula One. And I remember watching that as a young kid with my dad. And I remember Williams giving him an absolutely phenomenal, like super quick, well, in 1985 terms of uh, pit stops. And he went on, I believe he won that race. And, you know, I, I it sticks in my memory. I don't have the stats here. And then of course, I, you know, Anybody that was a Formula One fan back in the day will remember Nigel having that massive blowout of his rear tire on that back straight yeah. in Adelaide in 1986, which cost him the championship. And, uh, you know, uh, but by that time, you know, as a, you know, as a kid, I was absolutely hooked on Formula One. And it's it's something that's never let up since. That, so.
0: that Dallas race, by the way, and I encourage your, you as our listeners to go and look this up. Uh, it was the 1984 race. Um, look it okay. up on YouTube. Yep. Um, it was the final lap. His transmission failed. Okay. It was... 40 degrees Celsius. I knew it was bloody hot. 40 yeah. degrees Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. Like, so, so 105 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that, And again, yeah. it's 40 degrees air temperature. So like you're walking around the track and again, crazy, crazy, crazy. But look it up on YouTube.
1: You know, yeah. I mean, back in the day too, I mean, is that when they had those really thick fireproof overalls, I mean, it's oh, not huh. like, the, like the super sleek ones that the guys uh, wear today. I mean- Completely uh, different, but anyways, enough for memory lane. Let's uh, let's get back on. it needs to be a segment, by the <laughs> way. We need to have a memory lane segment. MotoGP corner, memory lane. You know, we, we, we could just uh, we could probably have a four-hour show each and every week. But uh, oh man, yeah, just uh, talking about the schedule. So it sounds like now that the chances of going back to Portimao for this year is not <laughs> going to happen, sadly. Uh, you know, this is very disappointing, but, um, you know, it wasn't really officially on the chat or like on the schedule to begin with. I mean, we've been hoping it would be, but sounds like it's going to be off. Sounds like we're going to have like another Bahrain too by the sounds of it uh, but i guess it'll make uh, make sense uh, that way i mean china vietnam uh, we, we knew they were off the schedule already you've hinted at montreal is probably going to be the next one that's going to going to fall off here so we'll see but uh, certainly that uh, that would have been a good good add to the season so disappointed that one probably isn't going to happen
0: yeah. And I don't know if it's clear. And again, it was so funny because when I saw this headline come across on Twitter or wherever it was, I was really disappointed. And then I realized it was never officially on the calendar. I just keep talking about it as <laughs> like if it was happen. that in yeah. my mind, it became yeah. fact, like it's on the calendar. It was never on the calendar. So you're right. Like it makes total sense for a second race in Bahrain. You know what? You're already going to go down there for winter testing. You basically put the entire sport in a bubble for four weeks, let them do winter testing, let them run the, the inner ring, let them run the outer ring, and then you can move off to Continental Europe. It wasn't clear to me though, was the thought that you would potentially move Imola back by a couple of weeks? And you would stage the second Bahrain race where the Imola race was supposed to be, um, or was it that we were potentially going to get a race a week or two earlier than maybe we were expecting the season to begin? I I, I can't confirm, but I think that's kind of an interesting uh, conversation point as well.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, this this Rubik's cube of the uh, the the season and the schedule and what's on and what's off and what might uh, be rescheduled or canceled at this point has become a little bit uh, confusing. <laughs> I haven't been able to keep up uh, quite. Me, me honestly. too. Me too. I'm just disappointed that uh, that that Portimao isn't uh, probably going to happen because, uh, you know, it may not have been on the schedule on paper, but it was on the schedule in our hearts. So I guess we'll just have to be uh, hopeful it'll come back uh, uh, another year. Anyways, Mark, let's just uh, take a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. When we come back in a minute, we're going to talk about, uh, well, silly gimmicks, something like that. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, it sounds like the reverse grid idea is finally out. It's not going to happen. They're thinking about uh, sprint races and some other things. And I, I'm glad that the sprint, or sorry, not the sprint thing, but the uh, the, the the reverse grid thing is uh, not going to happen. You know it. Uh it's it's apparently been shelved completely you know according to ceo stefano domenicali and i think this is a great thing that for me was too gimmicky it was too much in the in the same spirit of this rolling cutoff time we saw a couple of years ago uh, i i'm very much up for the idea of the sprint races um uh, but certainly you know to pass like a final judgment i'd have to see like a total proposal i have to admit i'm a bit of a traditionalist i like the format that it that it is now and I, th- I would have to say that anything that they have to introduce, I think would have to, it'd have to be like a big value add to the sport. I just don't want to change it just for the sake of changing it. And I certainly don't want to change things too soon until we see the benefits of the cost cap, the benefits of the new regulations or lack thereof. So I don't think in my books that this is something that needs to be done too quickly because uh, they're, they're considering trials of sprint races in 2021 I think that's uh, fair enough, but I, you know, I don't think they need to push it through too fast.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because when I saw this headline, the first thing I actually went to do was I, I went to Reddit because I wanted to get a sense of kind of what the fans are thinking. And, and overwhelmingly the sentiment on Reddit and on some of the forums I was checking was very much the same. Like one, the fans aren't asking for this. The drivers aren't asking for this. The teams aren't asking for this. Mm-hmm. You don't, don't throw these kind of gimmicky innovations on us when nobody's asking for it. And yep. I, you know, I'm, I'm super relieved that we're going to walk away from that reverse grid because that to me was infuriating. Like you're, you're <laughs> doing so much to create parity within the sport. Like the transformation that we're going to see over the next couple of years in terms of the cost cap and the unified uh, architecture um, in terms of design and engineering, like this is the most transformative the sport's ever been in terms of creating, um, I would say, foundational parity within the sport. And if you can't achieve that with a cost cap and you can't achieve that with new formula regulations, you're never going to be able to do that with a reverse grid. So I'm so thrilled that garbage gimmicky reverse grid is out of the window i i think to your point too like i just don't know what value a sprint race would necessarily add um maybe like i'm open to the idea of you know what, throw out some points for qualifying you know what, mm-hmm. make qualifying a little bit more like create some more value in in qualifying but i don't like this concept of like hey let's throw out a sprint race when nobody's asking for it and it could just muddy and sully the sport as a whole because again from a liberty perspective, you're, you're trying so hard to one, open up new markets and two, keep your existing fan base content. And when you do gimmicky things like this, you upset your existing fan base, but you also create a more confusing product for new for new, potentially new viewers, right? Um, so yeah, I, I've completely aligned with you on this one.
1: You know, it'd be interesting. I mean, what, how about they, uh, give points out for maybe the, the fastest three times in Q1, two, and three or something like that, rather than say, you know, give points out for the, for the, you know, the, the final 10 cars in the top 10 shootout. I mean, something totally. like that, you know, like, um, I I would hate to rush something in, but like like you say before we see the benefit of all these things that they they work so hard to introduce. Yes. And, and and you know for for that exact purpose of leveling the p- playing field, getting that parity across the board, it just uh, it, it seems a little bit uh, too much cart in front of the or, or horse in front of the cart or cart in front of the horse, whatever that old saying. Well, I guess the horse goes in front of the cart anyways you know what I, what I'm getting at here I think they have to give a chance to the you know all the measures that they put in place and they they, they work so hard in the middle of a global pandemic you know lockdown to get this uh, stuff done in 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 record time I think they have to give that a chance first.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just, I don't want to see them distract from all the good work they've done. And the good work is, you know what, getting all of the teams on board with the new regulations and getting all the teams on board with a, a new formula for a cost cap and getting all the teams on board with a new Concord agreement. Like Liberty's done so many great things to put this sport in a really great sustainable position for the next five or 10 years. Don't, don't destroy that by creating a distraction with a garbage reverse grid race or a mm-hmm. sprint race or some of these other gimmicky things. To your point, and you make a great point, like you've done all these great foundational things, let some of these things play out before you start modifying with the formula over the course of a race weekend. Like, I think they've done some great things. And you know what, again, from my perspective, I don't actually love the idea of a cost cap, but I know it's the right thing for the sport. It's the right thing to, to, for it to be sustainable because me being a ro- romantic, like I want want to see that the best teams spend all the money in the world and put the best possible car on the track. But I also know that that's terrible for the long-term viability of the sport. So I think they're doing the right things. They were remarkably able to get all of the teams and all of the engine manufacturers onto the same page. Let this play out over the course of the next couple of years. Don't go tinking with the formula right now because you're just going to upset everybody.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I don't really have anything to to add to that. So We'll wait to wait, we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, like I say, I hope they just don't uh, rush it through. But one thing they absolutely need to do, and this is something that uh, both uh, Chase Carey and Stefano Domenicali have been talking about, is raising the profile of Formula One in the United States in 2021. And this is something that absolutely has to happen. It is basically an untapped market in terms of the sport, and uh, you know the, the United States is a huge market uh, for for sports, huge market uh, for autom- uh, automobiles. This just makes makes so much sense they keep talking about the, the adding another race Alongside the the U.S. Grand Prix at Austin, obviously they're, they're pretty far along in the discussions to hold one in Miami. And they're talking about uh, either having two permanent uh, races in the United States or perhaps uh, one permanent one and then maybe a rotation of uh, other venues. Apparently there's other uh, cities, other venues uh, throughout the country that they've been talking to. They're nowhere as far along in in terms of discussion that they, that they are with the potential
0: Miami race. So I think this is, I think this is well and long overdue. I absolutely agree. One of the things that uh, I think a lot of our listeners may not know about me is I actually enjoy the business side of Formula One and sports more than I actually do what happens on the court or within what happens on the track. And I get really invested in these kind of discussions. And I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that, Liberty never would have invested in Formula One if it didn't believe there was some really significant financial upside. The reality is that if you look at the sport and where it's extracting revenues today, principally that's coming from western europe with hosting fees and tv contracts from sky sports etc it's happening in the middle east with some really really weighty hosting fees but as far as the current calendar is concerned there isn't a lot of additional value to extract and ultimately remember liberty is a publicly traded company they need to show value to their shareholders and they would never have spent billions of dollars on this product if they didn't have a plan and their plan is the united states exactly like you said as far as they're concerned, the United States is a completely untapped market in terms of revenue possibilities. So little of what they generate from an OI perspective comes from the United States. It's it's ridiculous. But the challenge is... It's really difficult to get Americans invested in a sport which is perceived as being principally European or yeah. foreign. And I don't, I don't mean that in a disrespectful or potentially kind of racist manner, but for them, this is something that happens overseas. And the only way that you can increase the presence and the popularity of the sport in the United States is by having additional races. And you got to remember as well, the United States is geographically a gigantic country. A race in Austin, Texas has absolutely no impact on what happens in South Florida or what happens in the Northeast or really (laughs) even what happens in California. So as far as Liberty is concerned, and I've talked to a lot of people around the sport, Liberty's goal is three full-time races in the United States. They need to have three races because that's the only way that they believe they can tap into the TV money that's potentially there, right? Like if they're looking at ESPN and saying, hey, you know what? We want to sure up a long-term big dollar TV contract with you. ESPN is going to say, look, you're giving us one domestic race and you're giving us mediocre or poor ratings. And even if they're increasing 100% year over year, they're so low that's insignificant. The only way you can build that audience is by expansion and that's going to be three races. So I think... Miami's probably going to happen they're going to push that through despite all of the local opposition which is a little bit terrible but I think potentially you're going to eventually see a race in the northeast as well I think California is going to be a challenge and I know a lot of people point at Long Beach and like hey that would be a great place as far as bureaucracy and red tape concerned, it's not going to happen there but I think Liberty's goal is we need to increase the value of the sport we need to increase our OI and they see the U.S. as the pathway to doing that
1: you know, I'll, I'll totally believe that, uh, the Formula One is a thing in the United States. The day that I walk into 7-Eleven and a cardboard cutout of Lewis Hamilton <laughs> is suggesting I get a six pack of Bud Light or I buy a Coke, then I'll know that the Formula
0: One has made it in North Absolutely. America. And, and, and I think. The- Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And I was just going to say, and the only other thing too is um, one way or the other, they got to get an American driver into the sport. Even if you have three American races, you you can't sell uh, a host of European drivers to an American audience, right? And I think we all remember Ricky Bobby where there was that French driver (laughs) that was uh, kind of his arch nemesis. But ultimately, you also need to be able to nurture some American drivers and get them into Formula One. And that should be feasible um, ultimately because you have such a great history of open wheel racing in that country. But obviously, as far as Liberty is concerned, more American races is their pathway, whether they're talking about it openly or not.
1: Well, there you go. You heard it on this show first. In order for a Formula One to succeed in the United States, Needs a little bit more shake and bake. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bake it. You, you dropped the Ricky Bobby uh, reference. I, I couldn't let that one slide. Anyways, uh, just as we start to wrap up the show, there was a couple of interesting uh, stories uh, and kind of rumors out there. And this is one we talked about um, a, a little bit. Apparently that uh, Ferrari is already interested in giving... Uh, Carlos Sainz an extension and I, I think this is one that uh, that we've talked about a little bit over the past uh, month or so. Uh, you know that uh, you know he's on a one year deal and uh, Sainz or sorry he has a two year deal but he, he hasn't uh, you know he's only had one test session. I mean he's not even you know hasn't even raced yet. He got Mick Schumacher waiting in the wings at uh, at Haas. I think um, it seems a little bit soon to be uh, talking about uh, that. I mean it's obviously a very very young uh, lineup that they have there. I mean bringing Mick Schumacher w- would uh, probably drive that average age down, uh, even more, but, uh, it, it seems, you know, seems, seems very premature that Mattia Bonata would be suggesting that, uh, you know, so, so early before we've even got a, a race or two or six or 10 under our belt and we can say, okay, well now we've got an idea of how, you know, Carlos lines up against uh, Charles Leclerc. And is this, you know, is this going to work?
0: I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that that's awfully, awfully, uh, optimistic because I don't know that Bonato is going to be with Ferrari in two <laughs> years to see signs taking a third season, Great right? Like, th- this is a guy that has... <sighs> Again, he, he's nice and he's charismatic and he's accessible to the media and he says all the right things. But he also oversaw the horror show, which was the FIA scandal, mm-hmm. um, ultimately. And he needs to be accountable for that. And he needs to be accountable for the fact that the relationship with with Vettel and Leclerc played out so poorly on, on a public stage. Um, but I think it's absolutely absurd for him to be making these comments. Like, I just, I can't. I can't reconcile myself with what he has seen that he would put those comments out there so early. You know, if Signs was in a one-year deal and he was looking good and he was doing great in the simulator and his relationship with Claire was strong you know okay that makes sense you know you start teasing that second season you know what, if it's a great year and we see these things and and you know what i can see a second year but he's got a two-year deal like to be suggesting that you're going to re-up a third year is is absurd he's never to your point he's he's never driven a race he's never been in practice he's never qualified we have no idea what his capabilities are and to be totally honest it's you could argue that the car he's going to be driving in next year is fundamentally inferior to the car that he was in last year so there's no guarantee that he's even going to score more points in this upcoming season than he did the last season so and and again you and i've talked about this a lot as well my sense is that ferrari ultimately is obviously hungry to get mick schumacher into that car and he's absolutely not going to replace charles Leclerc because he's the, the organizational golden boy at this point but yeah i was really shocked by those comments
1: yeah well it, it is interesting too because if you see some of the comments that uh, gunther steiner <laughs> Principal has has been saying that uh, he's not really expecting or does uh, he'll be happy if uh, Mick doesn't break through the walls this year something something to that expect or uh, to that uh, to, to, to that effect but you know I find that a little bit interesting that I think that's fine for Gunther to say that but the the overachievers that is the family Schumacher especially when it comes to motor racing I I think that Mick will be doing everything that he can it might take him a little while to find his feet in Formula One yeah. obviously I mean a Formula One car is very different than, than what he's used to I mean uh, there is going to be a learning there curve there, obviously, but I mean, we look at how quickly Charles Leclerc took to Formula One. I mean, he was a rock star in that first year at uh, at Sauber, and I mean, just the the difference between him and his then teammate uh, Marcus Ericsson. I mean, he was so much quicker in the same garbage car that was a C37 <laughs> or whatever it was. I mean, it was not a great car, but he was that much better than his teammates. So who knows? I mean, will, will Mick Schumacher have the same lightning start to Formula One? Will it be a slow start? Will it be somewhere in the middle? I don't, don't I? Don't know, of course. I mean, this story is still to be written. But uh, I think that, uh, like you say, I think these are very peculiar comments that uh, Bonato is making at, at, at this point, considering the only Ferrari that uh, that um, science has driven so far is like a 2018 Car, I mean, obviously nobody's driven the new cars yet. They haven't had a, a race, so that seems premature, at uh, you know, to make such a, sta- a statement. And finally, we're we're going to stay on this uh, Ferrari tangent. We already hinted at it uh, with with, uh, with the, the the quotes there from uh, not Gene Haas, but uh, from Gunther Steiner. But Roman Grosjean is apparently very well. Obviously, everybody remembers uh, Roma, who was obviously a Haas driver. But apparently, he's very keen to take up Total Wolf on an offer for a test at Mercedes. And there's a bit of a backstory to that, but Grosjean, obviously out of uh, out of Formula One, going to IndyCar next year, his final moment in a Formula One car was that awful crash at Sakir that um, you just still can't believe that he walked away from that one. And look, let's be honest, I, I have not been the biggest fan about Roman Grosjean as a racing driver, but I was scared to death at what I saw. And I was absolutely, like everybody else, I was ecstatic to see him get out of the car with relatively minor injuries. But, you know, it's just kind of sad that that potentially could be his last moment in Formula One. And uh, Haas is apparently not able to give him a test uh, because they don't have any power units in the old cars or anything like that. So Total Wolf, and I think this is great, he said that if uh, there's nobody else out there in the teams that uh, that Roman has uh, raced for, Mercedes would step up and give him the opportunity to do a private test for them, so to, to to basically finish his Formula One career on a high note. And if that goes ahead, I think that that that's a great move on the the behalf of Total Wolf and Mercedes.
0: Yeah, it's a sweet gesture. And I think it's important to note as well. And I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but it looks like Rojan's going to IndyCar Circuit next season. Yeah. So he's got a ride. So he'll be back in a competitive open wheel racing car next season. The one thing that I thought was interesting and we should probably call out as well is while he's agreed to a contract to race in Indy next year, he will not be racing at any of the super oval speedways. And his comment was simply that I can't put my children and my family through that meaning that the super speedways are, as far as open wheel racing are concerned... Very very, very dangerous, but mm-hmm. just to comment on the the Mercedes piece ultimately it costs it costs toto and and Mercedes nothing to put him in the car for a test. It creates huge goodwill amongst yep, the fans and the spectators yep. like it's just it's a great story I, I think it's the right thing to do it it kind of kind of speaks to that narrative about Ferrari or Mercedes' dominance right that you have a team that is so incredibly dominant that a sweet gesture is to give somebody a, a, a sixty-minute session in your car. You know what? But I think it's a great story. Um, I'm excited to see Grosjean in his limited races next year in in India as well. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And Mark, that's it. That's all I've got. Uh, I, I I'm completely talked out. I mean, well, I'm not. I mean, we could probably easily go on for another hour or so, but I think we'll spare everyone uh, the, uh, <laughs> the 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 ordeal of that. And, well, you know, we, we are now one day closer to the the start of the Formula One season. We're obviously excited, and uh, we're we're gonna have to start working some of these other things that we've been teasing about, like Memory Lane, uh, the Moto GP corner. <laughs> these have to become a thing sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I have a rant about uh, Electronic Arts, the video game company, but I'm going to save that for next week because I I know this has been a long podcast and I kind of want to tease for next week. But uh, if you enjoy my rants, and uh, you probably don't, but I have (laughs) one about Electronic Arts for next week. So I'm going to save that up and just tease it.
1: I'll I'll have to tell my buddies that work for EA not to uh, listen to the show next week, but it's all good. (laughs) I
0: I think all of us in Vancouver know somebody or many people that work at Electronic Arts. They have a pretty significant presence in our home city. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a fact of life around here. Totally. All
1: right. Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for downloading uh, and listening to the show, watching on YouTube. Of course, if you want to get in touch, easiest way is on Twitter at f one pod or via email at ScooterEF1Pod at gmail.com. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay in touch. And we'll talk to you guys again this time next week. Bye for
2: now.